Hi, I'm Democratic strategist Allie Lapp. And I'm Republican strategist Liesl Hickey. Welcome to House Talk with Allie and Liesl, where we dig into U.S. House races and the fight for control in 2018. Today we're going to talk about California, and joining us is Politico's Elena Schneider, who is covering the Senate and House this cycle for Politico. Elena, you're a Winston-Salem native, a Northwestern graduate, so actually our paths cross a lot with my North Carolina roots and living in Chicago for a long time. Great places. They both are great places. <laughs> so you spent the week prior to the June 5th primary in California, mostly in Orange County, San Diego County. I guess you spent a lot of time on, what is that? A lot of time on the highways, on 405, the (laughs) 5, I don't even remember which ones, but yes, a lot of time on the highway. (laughs) So Elena has some great insight into what happened in California, but just really interested to first talk about your discussions with voters on the ground, what was going on, where were Democrats? Uh, There have been a lot of articles written about how Democrats slept through the primary and didn't show up. Historically, it was a very low uh, primary turnout in California, but really interested, you know, before we get into the nitty gritty about the races and some of the data, just like what were people saying and what was your impression of what was happening in California? Well, part of what makes California so interesting and so complicated is that there is a top two system in which uh, whichever the top two vote getters are, regardless of party, move on to the general election. So everyone appears on the same ballot. And that can present problems in battleground districts in which there are a number of candidates on both sides. So we saw this come up in a number of races. And part of what I found to be so interesting in in covering these House races was that voters were aware of it. Like you're sitting in Washington, you're covering these races, you're talking to people like you guys who are totally plugged in and can't get enough of this stuff. But voters you don't necessarily expect them to be quite as plugged into the process. And what was striking, and obviously these are, you know, high information voters who are going to events who care about these races, but all of them that I talked to, there was not a single one who who said that they weren't factoring the top two system into their vote, that they were trying to be strategic about how they voted, who they were supporting, following polls, even though there weren't many of them and nor were they necessarily very reliable. Uh, to try and make their decision so that their vote actually mattered. And that's a really striking departure from uh, from what you necessarily see in generally in these primaries. Normally people just sort of go with their gut. Uh, maybe they'll see have seen a couple ads, but they're not necessarily paying us attention as much. But Or they go with the party-endorsed candidate. Exactly. And in, in California, that's, again, particularly compl- complicated. So um, there were all kinds of different elements and cross currents that came uh, that came in for Democrats, and it made it really problematic because there were these real risks in these three Orange County districts, and one uh, further north of there, which we didn't really expect, that also is a potential for a lockout where Democrats would wake up on June 6th and wouldn't have a candidate to vote for in November. So we haven't had a lot of competitive races in this part of the country for the House in many years. Right. Um, you know, we have seven highly competitive districts in California that Hillary Clinton won that are held by a Republican. What's going on out there in California, particularly in Southern California, where five of those districts are ranging from, you know, just north of San Diego all the way up to, you know, a little bit of Ventura County in Los Angeles County, I believe. Um, what's going on in that part of the country that suddenly these are competitive races? 
there's a lot that's been accelerated by the Trump presidency, which is a part of it. So obviously, this is a demographically changing district. It's a lot more Latino. It's a lot more Asian American. It's a lot younger. A lot of younger families are moving into this area because they can't afford to necessarily live uh, in L.A. proper, that they're moving out to the suburbs. And, uh, and so demographically, it's changed a lot. But the Trump presidency and the Republican brand and Californians' understanding of that brand has accelerated maybe their their feeling of alienation and also an increase. We've seen a huge increase in the number of independents or uh, a decline to state voters in California because they don't feel like maybe even party brand for either party isn't something that they want to identify with. So I think that they're... There's a sense that the Republican Party, especially as it pertains to immigration and uh, to social issues, is moving away from them. And they're interested in other candidates. And we saw that in the Hillary Clinton vote in 2016. This is, I mean, remember, this is where this is where Ronald Reagan and, and Richard Nixon's hometown is. This is a bastion of conservatism for a long, long time. And so to have it change as rapidly as it has um, is certainly exciting for Democrats. It opens up these huge opportunities. But it also leaves a real void in the infrastructure where there's not really, there's not a lot of you know, backbenchers. There's not a lot of candidates who can then rise and run in these races. So we had a lot of first-time candidates. There's not necessarily a strong, you know, infrastructure to help those get those people elected. So it's a lot more. Um, Harley Ruda, who's running in the 48th, said to me, "It feels like the wild, wild west out here." And there's an element of that because everyone's sort of just scrambling to get through these things. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think that's so interesting is that in these five Southern California districts. Only one of them had an even close to legitimate candidate running last time for Congress. Right. The other four were virtually unchallenged. And in the 49th district, um, the Democratic candidate, Doug Applegate, sort of caught fire very late. He wasn't someone that the party was emphasizing early on. Not he, at all. So it's it really does show how much things have changed. What were the top issues that you were hearing about as you talked to voters? So I was particularly focused on Democrats because th- so those are the events that I was going to. So I wasn't talking to as many Republicans. Um, so the Democrats that I spoke with, a lot of them talked about gun violence. A lot of them talked about health care. Um, there was talk about the gas tax, which is something we should I get into a little about bit about. That, yes. <laughs> um, but I, you know, there was one Republican who I ran into who um, who uh, at a farmers market we just sort of struck up a conversation with each other, and he said that you know for him it's genuinely being a check on the president that. that that for him is what is most important because he feels like Trump is sort of out of control. And um, so I think you've got a range where there are definitely some policy issues, but California is a place where Democrats can arguably really run on an anti-Trump message. I mean, that's probably not enough. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on whether and what else they should be talking about in California. But I do think that that is that that's resonant there. Well, and speaking as a political operative, one of the things that I think it's so fun about California is that they are new districts. They are, we, we did some focus groups out there before the primary. And as my moderator said to me after, he's like, this is amazing. They're not jaded after hearing, you know, years and years and years of political advertisements. Not like Iowa. <laughs> They're not like the voters in Des Moines um, right. or even, you know, in other, you know, Philadelphia or New Hampshire, where there are always competitive congressional districts year after year after year. They hear the same old messages again and again. And uh, these voters are, I think, taking a fresh look at it and open to hearing fresh arguments. Um, and I, you know, I do think that's one of the reasons why. Look, and most of these Democratic candidates running in all these districts were outsiders, but certainly everyone that's about to be nominated is a real political outsider. I don't think a single one of them has ever held office before. That's right. I don't think any of 
I'd have to look through the list, but I'm pretty sure none of them come from that. They're all first-time candidates. Well, so let's just get into the, the data a little bit. So, well, first of all, votes won't be finalized for weeks, and we won't have real data for a long time. But what we have currently— And that's because California allows you to just have your ballot postmarked by Election Day. Right. So there are still ballots being received, number one. Number two, there was some kind of voting glitch going on in Los Angeles County, which doesn't affect many of our congressional districts, but— um, people's names were left on the ballot, including the Fonz. I don't know if yeah, you saw I, that. I let, Elena tweeted this out, yes. and I thought it was really funny. Stars, they're just like us. <laughs> yes. Thank <laughs> yes. you. Exactly. Good. So that, there'll be a lot of provisional ballots that the voting election officials have to have to go through. Um, so there are still more votes to count for sure. And that's why in the 48th we keep seeing the two. It's unclear between those two Democrats, Hans Kirsted and Harley Ruda, who might actually – challenge Dana Rohrbacher because they keep switching places every evening when they keep voting ballots. Right. Which is fitting or since that ballots. was one of the most heated primary right. battles. So it's it's perfect that it hasn't <laughs> it ended. It goes down <laughs> to the wire. Yeah, exactly. Well, we spent a lot of time uh, here calling it a jungle primary, which isn't actually correct. So are people in California calling it a jungle primary or do they call it a top two? I think they use it kind of interchangeably. Okay. I mean, jungle primary is so much more, more sexy. And it's a little, it's a little more vivid. It's a little more, yeah, exactly, a little more <laughs> exciting. But I think they use it sort of interchangeably. But it was just speaking on turnout, though. It was what we've seen, and, and I'd be curious if you've got more or later da- latest data than I do. But um, I was talking to Paul Mitchell, who's a data data consultant out of Sacramento. And he was saying that, you know, we've been talking nonstop in the last couple of weeks about what he's seeing in these uh, absentee ballots that come in sooner. And it was pretty low. So it was definitely not, I mean, it was above 2014, which was a historically bad year for participation in California, but it's still pretty low. And so I was sort of, you know, pushing him and pushing consultants and pushing, um, you know, different candidates of, okay, aren't you concerned that the turnout is, is lower? But in this final stretch here in the last couple of days, he said that they're actually seeing a real uptick and that there might be sort of a late surge that we won't know about until the very end where it may actually even out, where it won't be quite, it's certainly not going to be at presidential levels by any means, but that it'll, it'll be higher than maybe we first sort of anticipated. Well, and maybe that's because of some of the strategic voting you were talking about. Maybe you had voters right. really holding on to their ballot to see who do I want to vote for, who has the greatest chance of actually making it through. Mm-hmm. That, that would make sense. Well, let's start talking about some of the districts. So why why don't we start with the 10th, which is one of the Northern California districts and one of the districts where we don't quite yet know who's going to make it through. So this is an incumbent Republican, Jeff Denham, and he was challenged by a Republican on the right, a guy named Jeff Housey, who's a big Trump guy, really went after Denham for his more moderate stances on immigration. And you had a number of Democrats here. And as of now, this race is really neck and neck for second. Jeff Denham is, is of course, in first with 37.7% of the vote. And Josh Harder is at 15.7%. He's a Democrat. And Ted Housie's at 14.4%. So really close. Yeah, I mean, this one came out of left field uh, for, for most of us. Um, I obviously don't have the benefit of polling at all times, so I'm a little jealous of the two of you who get to see all of this. We just get to hear about it secondhand. But I was not warned uh, I don't think a lot of us were warned about this potentially being an issue. Um, I think that there was a sense that Jeff Denham was, you know, in a safe position that he would, you know, and, and Josh Harder, who raised the most and has been the most active Democrat, would get through. Um, but obviously, hitting someone from the right is effective, and uh, and it's and it leaves open these possibilities where it could divide up the vote. So it's certainly one to watch. Yeah. Well, I think this is totally overhyped in terms of that Jeff Denham has a base problem, and I, I think it was absolutely overhyped. I think the best case scenario would have, 
and will continue to be if uh, um, Ted, Ted, Ted thank you. <laughs> we have like 1,000 candidates in California. Ted gets through in the in the top two, and Jeff Denham is going to be just fine. I think Jeff Denham is going to be just fine in November no matter what. Um, and if he's up against um, uh, the Democrat. Josh, Josh Harder. Thank you, Allie. <laughs> Josh. I mean, obviously this will be a race. Jeff's not uh, unaccustomed to tough races, but – I think people are trying to read more into the situation than it actually is there. Well, Denham's been a strong candidate for sure. I think Democrats have a good candidate here. Um, certainly the one who I think gives us the best shot of winning in the general. I think it'll be a tough race. As I said, Denham is always tough. Um, but it is a district that voted for Hillary Clinton. So I'm sure you know you, you will definitely see Democrats putting real money behind this and trying to make this a pickup. I want to know if Democrats are going to put real money behind California 21. Well, California 21 is one of the most Democratic districts held by a Republican. Uh, Hillary won it overwhelmingly. Obama always won it. I think I said earlier it's like this beautiful-looking piece of cake on the table, but it, we, it, but it's poisonous. And so, but we reach for it every time <laughs> because it's so tempting. It's a tempting district. It is tempting. It is. On paper, it looks great. In reality, it's terrible for you all. <laughs> by the way, by the way, we should give the DCCC uh, a shout out here because the candidate in California 21 is TJ Cox, who was originally running in um, California 10. And they were able to get a candidate out of the Valadeo race, get TJ Cox in to be the only Democrat who is a stronger candidate. Wait, you won't miss Emilio Huerta? Um, I will not miss Emilio Huerta as a candidate. I think probably a lovely man, but not a very strong candidate. Um, and I think, truly, I think if T.J. Cox had continued to run in the 10th and run a strong campaign, I don't see how we would have gotten anyone through there. So that was certainly a, a disaster averted by the DCCC for sure. Um, I mean, look, California 21, it is a very Democratic district that likes to vote for David Valadeo. Um, I think T.J. Cox is a good candidate, and we will see if we can put this one in play this year. So it sounds like they'll be spending some more money there. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. It'll be a waste of it. <laughs> it's not only a Democratic district. It's a really cheap district. It is a cheap district. That is true. It's in the so Central it Valley. Much. Yeah. It is a cheap district. And, and look, frankly, both of these districts, California 10 and 21, um, to win them, Democrats need a really good, strong turnout from Latinos, especially younger Latina voters. Um, California 21 is a very young district, and our challenge here has always been getting younger Hispanic voters to turn out here. Did you go up there at all, Elena? Were you I just didn't in make Southern it to, California? I, yeah, I didn't make it all the way up to the Central Valley, unfortunately. But uh, Well, let's move time. south then. California 25, were you up there much? Uh, I did not also make it there because it's still a two-hour drive from Orange County up to Yeah, but probably just uh, a few miles County. away, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> by, um, by helicopter, would have been a lot faster. But unfortunately, Politico won't spring for one of those for me. So maybe next time. Yeah. But, but that's another really interesting race that turned really uh, personal and nasty. And, um, and I think, you know, sort of speaks again to how uh, both committed and personally uh, – you know, people take races, and, and arguably Democrats take races. And um, Brian Caforio, uh, it was interesting to watch him try. And I didn't talk to him about this specifically. I talked to Doug Applegate about this. But those were the two candidates who both ran in 2016 in these districts. 
and came, you know, Brian Cavorio had less success than than Doug Applegate, but at least ran and built up his name ID, got support from the D-trip, and yet neither of them ended up getting support in 2018 from the D-trip. And I think that that was uh, something that both of them, I think, felt a little, uh, as Doug, Doug Applegate put it to me, I got invited to the dance and then they stood me up. So um, I, I'd be curious to get your take on sort of why maybe they chose to do that. But uh, Katie Hill puts them, I think, in a good position as a good contrast to Steve Knight. Uh, she's young. She's really energetic. She's got a ton of uh, network power. Kristen Bell is constantly tweeting about her. So I think that there is an element of she's she's got the network to really fundraise there, and she's a really good contrast, whether or not she is quote-unquote too liberal or if the primary brought her a little to the left. Um, we'll see how that pans out, but I don't think that it was necessarily a huge policy difference between Brian and Katie. Well, all the Democratic primaries are bringing their candidates further to the left, and I think they'd probably like to be. And... Um, and it did seem that Democrats didn't get their top pick of the candidates that they, their top choice candidate that they wanted in all these races. I'm sure they would have rather had Brian because he had run before and the name ID. And I mean, obviously, with the, in these races, they're incredibly expensive in these huge media markets that nobody can afford broadcast TV for a prolonged period of time, if at all. To build your name ID for you know for someone like her, I mean, that costs a lot of money. Yeah, I, look, I actually disagree. I think. I would say the insiders in this race actually wanted Katie Hill. Um, she, her father, I believe, is a cop. She's got an interesting profile for this district. Um, you know, Steve Knight. The thing that I have found interesting about Steve Knight is that this is a very swing moderate district, and he doesn't really seem to know that. He doesn't try to moderate himself at all. Um, I think he's still pretty, you know, strictly conservative and Republican, and so I think he's quite vulnerable here. I think Katie Hill is probably the stronger of the candidates. I think we could have won with Brian Caforio as well. Um, but when I was out in California a month or two ago, I, everyone I talked to who cared about this race just about, with almost without exception, really was supporting Katie. And, you know, th there's no question there's a very active women's donor network, several of them, in Southern California, and they were extremely pumped up about Katie Hill. So I think she's going to have a lot of support, um, both, you know, from donors, grassroots activists. And, and I don't think that this primary really was about ideology or issues. I think it was much more about, um, you know, Caforio had done it before. She hadn't. She was an outsider. And I think that, you know, Caforio was a trial attorney. He had a lot of attorneys on his side. She really had a strong women's base going on. But I didn't really see this getting argued too much about on, on the issue or ideology front. Well, I think, too, where she succeeded was that she there were two other women who were in the race, too. And often when we see several women in a primary and there's only one guy, the guy tends to benefit because the women's vote is, is split amongst them. And I think Jess Phoenix got maybe five five or six percent but maybe just five percent six um yeah. and then another female candidate uh, below her so i think that you know it speaks to katie's ability to actually get past them and get through the through the primary that she was able to do that even with those those extra challenges well let's talk about california 39 this is uh this is an open seat and from the very beginning when congressman ed royce retired all Democrats knew this is a big shutout risk here. There were already a lot of candidates in the race, which, you know, is not an issue if you have one strong Republican incumbent, as Ed Royce would have been, and then, you know, heck, you'd have 10 Democrats. Someone's going to come in second who's a Democrat. But then Ed Royce retired, and you had a number— in chaos. In chaos <laughs> ensued. ensued. <laughs> exactly. 
Um, what did you see? Were you following this race when he decided to retire in January? How were you following? What, what did you think when you saw that? Yeah, absolutely. When he announced he was not going to run in January, it was uh, it threw a wrench, I think, in everyone's plans at the D trip. I think that the I remember when I met uh, Dr. Tran and Gil Cisneros and uh, um, Andy Thorburn, all three of them were invited to a D-Trip Canada event that fall. And they were really trying to just sort of say, okay, we're, you know, in a good position at Royce. Any of these people will work. We'll just sort of let the chips fall where they may. We don't have to put our finger in on this. And as soon as he retired, that uh, the, the effort to try and persuade people to find other places to run or to potentially not run at all went kicked into high gear with varying degrees of success. So uh, Jay Chen, who would have been a really formidable candidate and would have certainly, I think, created a Republican lockout situation, they successfully convinced him to drop out. That was a significant win. Uh, Phil Janowitz was another one. But they weren't able to get the, Sam Jamal and, and, and Mike Contran, and those were two uh, you know, strong candidates who ran, in any other scenario, credible campaigns, both raised more than half a million dollars. And, and they weren't able to get them out. And I think what's so striking about this and goes to sort of the infrastructure question, I remember talking to Dr. Tran about why her conversations with uh, members of Congress and the committee who were telling her, you need to drop out of this race, you need to think of your long-term political future. She said, what long-term political future? I just am a pediatrician and I decided to run. Like, what right. do you, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard to tell these first-time candidates, you need to think of the party, you need to think of your future, when they have no connection necessarily to their local party or to the general party and are just doing it because they're activated by the moment. And so I think that they, the D-trip was in a very difficult position. The California Democratic Party was in a tough position. That's why so much attention was focused on these places, because it was going to be a test of their strategy. And if any of them had been locked out, that would have been a huge failure on the part of the party. But they managed to survive. So yeah, congratulations. This is, <laughs> yeah, the, well, this is one of the few where we have uh, declarations of victory here. Republican Young Kim came in first with 22% of the vote. And Democrat Gil Cisneros, uh, who's got a very interesting profile, came in second with 19% of the vote. Um, Gil Cisneros was unemployed and won the lottery, like a huge lottery win, and started like a philanthropy. Million dollars I or something like that? I think that's right. I think that's right. And gave has given a lot of it away to different philanthropies, education foundations. So um, it's a it's a really interesting and and you know in some of the voters I've heard from, it's a compelling story. Actually, they really are drawn to are drawn to it. Yeah, and I think his his uh, background as a veteran, he served. I think that that's also something that people he really talked about. I went out and um, saw him knocking on doors and interacting with voters a lot, and that was often what he talked about because I think that's an element, especially for for Democrats, they feel like is an important element to a candidate's biography. And um, and I think that Gill was able to really tap into the Latino communities and get people out to vote, and that is going to be his only path to victory in a district like this is to really amp up Latino turnout. And uh, we're still going to wait a little while before we have full answers as to how much it might have gone up, um, because luckily California does have a really rich voter file that they sh they make public. Um, but I think that we'll see evidence that Latino turnout was up there. Well, we definitely got our best candidate here. I mean, young Kim, she's just incredibly Absolutely. dynamic. And she fits the district. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a large Asian-American population in this district. And uh, I think having a woman candidate here for not just that community, but other voters is a great signal about defying what you say is a brand that a lot of voters may not like. She feels very different from that sort of brand. Oh, she absolutely defies what 
maybe California voters would put on the Republican Party. She's the antithesis of that. Yeah, she's and she's got all the you know she's got the institutional and and structural support from the Ed Royce uh, community. Right. And she was a longtime staffer long, yeah, exactly. for him, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she's you know she is so wired into the to the community already, and I I think. Uh, I think this will be a really tough race for for Democrats. I think she will she I mean the the National Republican donor community is incredibly excited about her. I think a lot of money will go towards her cuz she's exactly what, you know, what Republicans see not just in California but what they like to see, you know, added here in Congress as well. Yeah, and she's already built up name ID. She's already yeah. she's already been serving this community for quite some time and you can't underestimate that. It's going to take a lot for Gil Cisneros to to come in and sort of tell his story in a, in a way that's going to be convincing when they've already had somebody p- representing them that I'm sure, you know, based on her, on the results uh, from Tuesday, people feel like they really, she's done a good job. And Ed Royce is still just really well liked and respected mm-hmm. in this district and that will help her a lot. Well, and it's interesting, you know, here we are in this Orange County, mostly Orange County district, and you have a Hispanic man and an Asian American woman running for Congress against each other. It really, I think, is quite forward-looking, no matter... For no matter, both parties. For both parties, right? absolutely. And you were on the ground here, Elena. What do you, what's your take on the dynamics of this district, and would you give an edge to either party as they look to win this in November? Oh, man, that's a tough question. I, I think that when we get more information about who voted, that I'll be... So I'm going to sort of hedge my bets here and ask to be brought back when uh, when we have more information. I think... what we're usually doing on this side, Elena. <laughs> You're not allowed to do that. <laughs> I think... I don't know. I mean, I, I, uh, I what I was struck by was that the third place finisher here wasn't actually Andy Thorburn, who was the Bernie Sanders-styled candidate Democrat who spent millions of his own money in in spending in that race. It was actually Phil Liberatore, who right. is a Republican who had Joe Arpaio, the you know very controversial former Arizona sheriff, come out and and stump for him. So uh, and he was he managed to get 14 percent of the vote. So he I had a big assist from House Majority Pack on that. <laughs> <laughs> there was a Explain. lot. There was a lot of mail going out attacking Phil. Phil Liberatore did not have a lot of his own money to spend. Uh, there was a lot of mail attacking Phil Liberatore for being so conservative and being too conservative. Um, and my guess is that a lot of Republican voters in that district were looking for someone to sort of fit that, you know, Trump very conservative anti-immigration niche and instead of sort of being spread out amongst maybe Sean Nelson or Bob Huff which I think would have been their natural choice right they were drawn to Phil Liberatore instead so do you Liesl do you think that Young Kim is going to have a harder time than bringing that coalition back together to support her or do you think that people are just going to say she's the R on the on the ballot and I feel comfortable with that I think that's exactly what they'll do yeah I think especially in this situation, too, with everything that was uh, happening in terms of the Sanctuary Cities issue, that he also got a bump from that yeah. just organically. But I think when, you know, Republicans, they do just kind of come home. Mm-hmm. They really do. Everybody thinks, oh, Republicans stay home. It's just not in our nature to do that. Republicans just come home. And when, you you know, they go with the person who has our next name on the ballot. So I think that will be the case here. Yeah. So that being said, then I, I think that this is going to be a super expensive race. It's going to be very contested. And it's really going to hinge on if young people and Latinos turn out. If they don't, Young Kim is going to be a congresswoman. If they do, it could be really close. And maybe Gil could could come in on that. But it it's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough for Democrats. It's all about turnout. It is. It really <laughs> is. <laughs> And in the 45th district, uh, this is incumbent Mimi Walters. She actually had no other Republicans on the ballot, so this was a safe district for Democrats to just sort of sit back and watch. 
the primary fight, which got kind of nasty. Got very nasty. In fact, I was at a candidate forum in Irvine at a synagogue in which they had all of the candidates for 45 and 48 on stage. And Dave Min, you know, they, they started, they asked each of the candidates two questions. And they asked Dave Min about some of the negative ads. And he was booed. He was yelled at. He was, I mean, it was... Look, my future in-laws live in this district. This is a place where, and 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 they, people couldn't stop talking about it, and and it's something that they couldn't stop talking about because they were just drawn to the, the um, the intensity around it. They have never seen this much uh, energy and attention on the primary to to face off against Mimi Walters, and I think that. Um, Look, Katie Porter is somebody who had Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren go to camera to speak on her behalf. I love I th- that ad. And I think she's <laughs> that's going to be really problematic in a general election in which you've got to convince people who have traditionally voted Republican to suddenly vote for a Democrat. You've got to take the extra step of voting for a Democrat who also puts Elizabeth Warren at the top of their endorsee list. Um, that that makes it more difficult for Democrats. And I think Dave Min was trying to walk a more moderate centrist line. And between the negative ads and people's distaste for a centrist at this point, it didn't work out for him. And he would have been, in my mind, he would have been a much more formidable candidate. He definitely would have been. I mean, she is way to the left where this district is. Mimi's in a great position. I mean, this is one of the biggest wins out of um, the California primaries for the Republicans, is just to be able to go and put her in a much safer position, which means a lot more money for other people in, in, in this, you know, obviously right in this area. So... I mean, I feel great about this, and, and we should talk more about gas tax in a minute, but once again, I think gas tax here in this issue is going to be such a driving issue for Republican turnout, and we saw a uh, Orange County Democrat state senator yep. lose because of the gas tax Recalled, issue. yeah. Recalled, thank you. And so, I, you know, I, that is going to be such a, uh, a motivator for Republicans, and and we got John Cox at the top of the ticket in the in the gubernatorial race there where we didn't think we'd get two Republicans and that helps a lot too, but but I think you know the gas taxing is something that everybody needs to dig in on, in on a little bit more and I'd like to hear your thoughts about that too. But I think that here I, I with a Katie Porter Elizabeth Warren's Kamala Harris even style candidate that puts Mimi in a great position. Well, the one thing I'll say is that this will certainly test a debate that rages on the, within the Democratic Party every day, which is in a district like this, do you need someone who is more centrist, a little bit more pro-business, doesn't, you know, doesn't go all out there on some of the on some of the core liberal issues, or do you need someone who is, you know, in the mold of Elizabeth Warren and who's going to say, you know, no, here's how far we need to go and we need to do it now. And does that excite the base enough to offset the losses you might have in the center of your party? I mean, you get three Democrats in a room and they'll argue about that until the cows come home. So I think this this race will have will 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 test both theories out a little bit. Yeah, I think I. I think it's a great question as to whether or not there is some untapped progressive world in in Irvine because I mean again Irvine is another place that's really been changing and has really seen a lot of growth and whether or not this is something where they can actually make that argument and tap into it remains to be seen um, but clearly it worked in the primary whether it works in the general election uh, you know I know just you know like when this happens and this happens on the Republican side too where you get the same people arguing that same argument and that gets you to 48 maybe 
usually gets you to maybe 44 to 46. But like, you know, in these districts to go from 48 to winning, like that's really hard. And that takes that whole set of voters that don't normally want to vote for you, but then like you find the way to get them to vote for you. And that's how I see a race like this. So if you've got a candidate and this is, Alan, you and I probably agree more on this philosophy than some others on both sides of our party would, would agree. But if you have candidates that are just where you can't get that extra two points, like you can't win. They can't win. And we've well, there's a lot of races. Oh, yeah. In both parties. There's a lot of races on on both sides of the aisle where there is a really easy path to 48. But it's that three points more that you need or 2.1 that is hard. That is hard. And people don't regularly work in, in really tough swing districts they sometimes have a hard time understanding how hard that is. Yeah. Well, one thing I don't know, and Elena, you sort of alluded to this, so maybe I, I already know the answer to this question, but accepting that Dave Min and Katie Porter do have some ideological ground between them, Katie Porter is more left than Dave Min is, my take, and look, this is not a race we were polling in because we were not worried about you know being locked out here, but my take is, is that outcome has more to do with his negative campaigning tactics um, and the fact she's a woman, I think, did help her some there too than it did with, I'm voting for Katie Porter because she's more progressive. But w- you were out there. What's what's your take? Do you think it's both? Do you think it's I one think or it's the other? I think it's probably both. I think it's, I think it's probably both. I think Dave Min, look, Dave Min uh, managed to get the California Democratic Party endorsement. That's nothing to sneeze at. But... Um, <sighs> But I think that, yeah, there was this sense that there there was this negativity that was coming out of his campaign, and people go negative when they're worried about their position. And and I think that he I, – I, look, I, I was not in the, in the Min campaign, um, so I don't really know why they opted to do that other than they saw Katie Porter surging. And I, I'm sure part of that is from being a woman and late decider seeing those ads and saying, okay, she's got my vote. It's got to be some combination. Yeah. Well, let's move on to California 48, uh, which is a beautiful district, right? Gorgeous. You were just out there. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty nice. Um, and Congressman Dana Rohrabacher has represented it since 1987, I believe. And Before I was born. Oh, my gosh. That makes me feel old. <laughs> and I was born in this district, as I mentioned before Great. we started recording. I was born in Newport Beach, so... Uh, I was out there recently, and I don't know why I don't still live there. That's a good question. I think all of us are asking ourselves that. (laughs) Yes. So Dana Rohrabacher is a controversial Republican, right, Liesl? Um, I think you could say that. (laughs) You know, he he has some affection for Vladimir Putin, and that has caused him some problems within his own party. So he had a couple of challengers. One of them dropped out and endorsed the other. And they really made quite a strong and serious effort to get two Republicans on the ballot here. And I think, I think, fingers crossed, we are not in that situation. I think we will have a Democrat as the number two um, here. But I do think if the Republicans had succeeded at getting fellow Republican Scott Baugh on the ballot, I think Baugh would have just crushed Rohrabacher. Um, so there, there was you know, certainly a risk there for, for Dana Rohrabacher. But as it stands now, Dana Rohrabacher, the incumbent, came in first, but with only 30 percent of the vote. Um, And we have two Democrats literally within a tenth of a percentage of each other, um, Harley Ruda and Hans Kirstead. And then just a bit behind them is that other Republican, Scott Baugh. So we're eagerly waiting for these votes to be counted. And uh, Democrats, I think, are a little nervous about this and, and really 
really hoping that we that we do in fact stay in second place here with one of those two Democrats. I can't believe how much money Democrats spent in this district. A lot. I mean, if that's actually the DCCC. Yes, winners in a sense because if they don't get locked out anywhere, then that's obviously a big win. Um, but they spent but seven they million dollars to do it. Seven million dollars, or maybe more, as you know. It may, yeah, there may be more Lake County, that, but I, I think mean, it was about seven just, million. That is an incredible amount of money, mm-hmm. and um, I mean that's the kind of money that come you know October one you're going to really wish you had back. Yes, but, but it, it's look, it's a swing district. Um, you know the Republican Party has spent lots of money on holding these deep red special elections. I think parties feel like you got to do what you got to do. Absolutely, and you Absolutely. couldn't just take this one off the map. And it would have been um, you know an embarrassment if this if this had happened. I think what no one expected, and again having polled here consistently for a long time, you know. Dana Rohrabacher, his support just dissipated over time. You know, it, it just did not take much for Republicans to say, I don't want to vote for him. So as long as this holds, I do think this is one of Democrats' best pickup opportunities because of the weakness of Rohrabacher. I feel like there's not a lot going to be, like, um, there wasn't a lot of love last year between Hans and Harley. That and was it, Will there nasty. be, like, a unity breakfast? I'd like to see if that, that comes so, together at some point. Yeah, we didn't even talk about the unity uh, <laughs> the unity meeting uh, in California 39. But, um, no, I think the the most – California 48, this Dana Rohrabacher seat, was the biggest self-inflicted wound that the Democrats did to themselves. So they were – I couldn't stop hearing from the D-trip about how great Hans Kirstead was, this guy who was – saving us all from skin cancer, was going to be in this race. We're so excited about him. And then all of a sudden it started to get a little quieter and there was a sense that the committee sort of soured on him. There's a couple of missteps. He uh, was uh, told a crowd that he was already promised a chairmanship, which is uh, several steps ahead of where um, (laughs) he could possibly be promised, um, given that they hadn't even flipped the house yet. And, um, and there was obviously also some some really uh, unfortunate uh, investigations and allegations that came out in the final weeks, which were presented to the California delegation, in which there was some real uh, concern around that. Um, the Kirsten campaign would also point out that they felt that the committee did not present the results of that investigation. And this investigation was that he allegedly punched a woman in the face while he was a professor at UC Irvine uh, during sort of a drunken night out. And the uh, university cleared him of all charges, um, and so he was, uh, you know, walked out of that inves- investigation without any without any charges. And he's saying that basically the delegation wasn't told about that. Neither here nor there. They have a candidate who has a real problematic investigation that's hanging over them, and uh, and, and I has a really hard time telling the truth about it. Well, and, and lots of things, it seems. It's, yeah. Well, and all of this probably explains why, at the end, Democrats coalesced, tried to coalesce tried to around coalesce. Harley Ruda. Right. So this is it. So, so the so DCCC went up on the air for Harley Ruda. Endorsed him, attacked Republicans, and also went up on the air in support of Harley Ruda. And I think that that is exactly what got him through. The late Election Day voting, you know, I was just on the phone yesterday with the Ruda campaign manager who said, election day vo- pre-Election Day voting, we were down four points. Election Day, or the days leading up to election day we were up five that is a direct result of the d-trip getting involved and dumping money in that district so they saved themselves so it's not to say that they they didn't they weren't potentially successful because again only 45 votes separate the two right now um but i think that if if they do get harley through it'll be because they acted smartly and and picked a horse and decided to let hans go um and if they 
you know, but maybe if they had done a better job doing some research, that they wouldn't well, have had the problem in the first place. Well, what's really interesting with all the Democrats' first-time candidates, you run into these issues always with first-time candidates. When people have been elected to uh, their state houses or other things within their communities, there's been a somewhat of a vetting process usually. Right. With all these first-time candidates, they show up, and a lot of times you don't have a lot of time to go do a bunch of research on them, or things start to sort of slowly come out and you find yourself in real trouble with them. I think that's one thing for Republicans, which will be, I think there will be a lot of research available and maybe some really rich research like this on Hans. Uh, but across the country with a lot of these first-time Democratic candidates. But this will be a really interesting race if it is a Hans versus um, Rohrbacher. If uh, people yeah, are... What does the DJ like, do? <laughs> what's more, like, what do they do? Right. Like, do you stand, can they stand behind someone who has been... Um, accused, accused of, of Even if he has been cleared, he was still, you know... But in this environment, like, it's sort of, you know... It's tough. And look, no no one's watching the uh, vote totals come out of the California Secretary of State's office in the next few days more than Hans Kirstedt and Harley Ruda. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, it's also the other thing is it could certainly go to some kind of recount. Yeah. Um, which means we don't know who our nominee is until much later than we would like. Um, so the last district we're going to talk about is the further south, District 49, um, which is north of San Diego. This was the Daryl Issa seat, who also retired, much to Democrats' dismay, possibly. <laughs> he would have been a good opponent. Um, although, for, look, Daryl Issa had an unlimited checkbook, so there's always that that you have to think about. So this was another crowded primary where you had four Democrats all running real campaigns. You had, I always say, three and a half Republicans running real campaigns. You had three running very real campaigns and a fourth doing stuff. And then you had four or five others who were Republicans, four others, I think, who were not running real campaigns and a couple of independents. So very crowded. Um, you know, I kept seeing polling in this race that had six people between 11 and 15 percent. And it was like, who is going to make it through here? And it became clear um, that, you know, Diane Harkey was gaining ground. Rocky Chavez was losing ground as there was a lot of attacks levied against him at, in, uh, during this campaign. You know, I think Democrats are, I'll talk about the Republican field. You can talk about the Democratic field if you like, <laughs> Elena or Liesel. But I think Democrats are really happy with who we got in this election. I think Kristen Gaspar actually worried me the most. Um, you Thank know, you, Allie. <laughs> well, she did. She did. She was, again, kind of someone who, Republic doesn't necessarily embody what people think Republicans are right. in California. She was a younger woman, really came across well. So I, I'm relieved we got Diane Harkey here. She's got a lot of baggage, um, and I think that's the candidate we as Democrats want to be facing. Now, which Democrat will it be? I, I, we're close to knowing, I think. Well, I, this, uh, Allie and I, when we were trying to rank the districts that we thought were sort of easiest to hardest for Democrats to pick up in California, and we weren't agreeing on all of them, um, shockingly, but this is one where we agreed. I think this is a Democrat's probably best pickup opportunity. I mean, the numbers show it, and I think as more data comes back, we'll see more of that. And and um, I, 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 you know, Mike Levin, uh, he was kind of like the 
like back of the room kind of watching it seemed like this democratic primary playing out i mean slugging it out on the tv on airwaves yeah yeah i mean he was he was much more quiet than others who are really seem part of the debate i i really felt like applegate just because of what happened last cycle and name id and and whatnot and i felt like democrats kind of did want to be in the fight with him the next go around since he only lost by a couple hundred votes so you'd think there was something there uh with the democratic base but you know it seemed that Kerr and Jacobs, you know, they were really kind of splitting a vote that was similar and they were both spending so much money. Applegate, they kind of knew. And then Levin, he had sort of been out there early, then he seemed to quiet down and he really, you know, it kind of came from behind at the very final, like, end of this horse race. Yeah, I think Levin, um, Levin was a, Levin was not, I wouldn't say a surprise. I think that I, you know, spent some real time with him. Um, I went with him when he spoke to a Moms to Man action group um, in Vista, California, and uh, and he was really articulate, and, and people really came away liking him. I mean, almost every undecided voter that I spoke with afterwards was convinced that they liked him and were going to support him. And I think that, as you said, he got in early. I think there's an element of getting in early, getting people to know you, especially in these activist groups that are brand new, that there is some, there, there's a real attraction there. Mm-hmm. And it actually really reminds me of Colin Allred in Texas, who was another person who just let Everyone slug it out on TV, spent a lot of money on broadcast. You know, Ed Meyer and, and all these different people sort of blew it all there. And Colin Allred, you know, got in first, uh, quietly built up those relationships, and then really ran a strong mail and ground game. And Levin was the same thing where he, he just stuffed everyone's mailboxes with his picture. And that is really effective in a saturated media market, which is super expensive. To, to get through to your voters. And I think, you know, and it's, what's also striking is that he's really the only one from Orange, Orange County, which is the smallest part of the district. Right. Everyone else was from, from San Diego. San Diego. Right. And so it is striking, actually, that he is the only one from Orange County. And I think that that may actually force him to have to do a lot more work in San Diego uh, to sort of build up his, his base. But there. Diane's from Orange County, too. Oh, is she? Oh, well. So, so that's also what's interesting about this race is that you – the largest part of the district is San Diego, and you have two uh, nominees who are from Orange County. Yeah, and we'll watch them both scramble for that That's San yes. Diego. Then. <laughs> That's right. And our uh, we actually picked an ad from uh, this district for our ad of the week. Um, we knew how closely Elena had been watching these races and all the ads flying, and so we asked her what ad she thought we should highlight this week as we talked about the California primaries. So I picked this ad. It's from the American Future Fund, which I remember seeing that come across and be like, huh, um, that's interesting that they're airing ads. But, you know, you're focused on other things. I said the same thing. I'm like, they're from <laughs> Iowa. There's like an why, Iowa-based why are, why group. Are they why do they this? care? Um, but you get distracted. It falls down your priority list. You don't follow up on it. And um, and I, uh, you know, got a call uh, on, on, uh, on Tuesday midday with a little heads up that maybe we wanted to pay attention to that ad because um, Congressional Leadership Fund, which is the group aligned with, the super PAC aligned with, with, uh, with Paul Ryan and with House Leadership, had actually spent in three districts, so uh, three of the Southern uh, California districts we just talked about, 39, 48, and 49, where they were concerned in the same way that Democrats were about a potential lockout. I and think this would have been the place where we would have 
our highest percentage of getting locked out. Exactly. And so I think that this was the, for Republicans, the highest priority to make sure that a Republican got through. And so they decided to to pick favorites, which is also a big deal, given that Republicans have staunchly, especially the NRCC, has always stayed out of primaries and obviously notes people, several people in a primary, oh, this person's clearly put together a good campaign, add them to young guns. But unlike the D-trip, which as they like to say, militarily and diplomatically gets involved in primaries. The NRCC <laughs> does not. And um, and so for me as a reporter, it was really striking to hear that they had decided to actually uh, get involved and name their candidates that they wanted to get through. But it was two candidates, which right. I think is a really unusual tactic. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen an ad like this before where they say, vote for one of these two. I, I, I'd never seen that before. Is that something that's I had I thought it was an interesting ad and I uh, and you know what I, this is what I'll say about both parties getting involved in California they were really smart too and at this the the stakes are so, are so high uh, regarding California and what that means for the majority for the Democrats winning and for Republicans holding it that you know I think we're at that point where if everybody would have just sat out that. People would have been kicking themselves, and so this was, you know, we'll play the ad, but it was, uh, it was definitely something I hadn't seen before, and um, but it looks like maybe it worked. Pie or cake, a nap or a round of golf, a night at the movies or chilling at home. Sometimes it's hard to pick. On June fifth, there are two great choices for Congress. Businesswoman Diane Harkey knows how to create jobs. Harkey's a tax-cutting champion. Rocky Chavez is a retired Marine. Chavez will strengthen our military. Or Chavez, it's hard to pick. American Future Fund political action is well. What is really interesting about this ad is that they uh, they also specifically did not put congressional leadership. Excuse me. Congressional Leadership Fund paid for this ad, and that was a choice. They wanted to funnel this money through another group so that their name would not be attached to it, so that they could not be. Um, I think that they didn't want to necessarily get the attention until the very end of them meddling in these races, and uh, I think that that's a really interesting approach that I, as a reporter, now need to make sure that I'm paying attention to. So when those random groups pop up, that I'm I don't just forget about them. Well, this has been a great conversation, Elena. Thanks so much for sharing your insight. Are you going to get to continue covering California races? Will you get another trip out to Southern California? I think I'm going to be able to uh, negotiate my way back to Orange County soon. Excellent. Good. Well, we'll have to have you back to follow up on some of these races later and see how they're shaping up. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Thanks Elena. Thanks a lot.